Well, some of my friends think our best days are behind us. I don't believe that. I think our diversity has introduced new problems, but it's introduced wonderful opportunities. If you've ever wondered how to get your name on the back of a Navy destroyer, you'll want to listen carefully to this edition of Ebb and Flow. Our guest, Paul Ignatius, has indeed checked that box. And while we speak to him about that experience, we also focus on the fascinating life journey that has taken this 102-year young son of Armenian immigrants from a childhood in Glendale, California, to Harvard Business School, to the Pacific Theater in World War II, where his aircraft carrier endured not one but two kamikaze attacks, and ultimately to the most senior levels of U.S. government where he served John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson in roles including Secretary of the Navy and Assistant Secretary of Defense. And while many might rest on those laurels, Secretary Ignatius went on to ultimately become President of the Washington Post. We cover all of this and also hear this remarkable man's take on the current world order and his hopes and expectations for the future. I'm Paul Leeming, and on behalf of my Long River Wealth Management partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, and Paula Rose, welcome to this edition of Ebb and Flow. Secretary Ignatius, it is an honor, sir, to be with you today. Many thanks for sharing your time with us. Well, I'm glad to talk to you and look forward to your questions. Good. Well, I'll do my best. You know, and the challenge, I will say, of interviewing someone of your age and accomplishments, sir, is that there is simply too much I'd like to ask you about in these 30 minutes or so, but I'll do my best. And I'd like to begin, if I may, all the way back in 1904, when I understand your father immigrated to the U.S. from Armenia, a country and a people that had and would still suffer so much. Can you talk about your family's moved to this country, their early years here, and your own childhood in, in Glendale, California, where you were yeah. born in, back in well, 1920? Well, uh, my maternal grandfather grew up in what they call the old country, and he was educated at a college in a town called Harpert and spoke excellent English, translated some British poetry into Armenian. <laughs> and wrote some poetry of his own that had troublesome words like liberty and freedom. And <laughs> he got in trouble with the Ottoman authorities. And the family shipped him off to uh, Manchester, England, <laughs> which was the center of the British cotton goods industry, where they had many contacts because his family were distributors of British cotton goods in in that part of the world. And so he went to Manchester with my mother and her younger brother, Matthew. They were just babes in arms at the time <laughs> and lived in England for 20 years or so. My grandfather became a British subject in 1909, I think it was. <laughs> but the weather was not pleasant for him. And he came to California to a place called Tropico, which later became part of the uh, city of Glendale, California. My father, older brothers came to this country before he did. And he, my father, came around 1904, as you say, and went to Pittsburgh and went to a college in New York and then eventually to West Virginia, where he became 
a manager of a uh, sort of a glass factory uh, <laughs> in West Virginia and made a trip as a Shriner to Los Angeles where he met my grandfather and his daughter, Lisa, whom he fell in love with and moved everything to <laughs> California and settled up there. So that was the Western track. I was born in 1920 after my parents were married in uh, 1919 and grew up in that part of the world attending uh, public schools in Glendale and then the University of Southern California and eventually the Harvard Business School. <laughs> and can I ask you if the Armenian genocide and the atrocities that had taken place in that country, was that a big topic in the house? Is, did that hang over the family? They never talked about it. I learned so much about uh, Armenian history and uh, genocide and all of these unpleasant things. Many years later as an adult, I think the family found it too difficult to talk about or hmm. maybe they wanted to shield uh, my brother and sister and me from all of this and there was never any discussion of it. Sir, I'd like to ask you about your work as Secretary of the Navy and Assistant Secretary of Defense. Before we get to that, I can't skip the years when you served in World War II in the Navy that you would ultimately run. Would you Okay, <laughs> I was uh, sworn into the Navy in May or June of 1942. Hmm. And I was actually at the Harvard Business School, which had turned into a kind of military installation at the time with the Supply Corps Officer School and hmm. uh, another program for the Air Force. And we were sworn in and given Navy instruction and waiting to be called up. Some of us were called up within matters of days, others within matters of weeks. In my case, it was several months before I was called in. Hmm. And I trained as an ordnance officer and later as an aviation ordnance officer, eventually joined a small aircraft carrier, and we saw a lot of combat in the World War II. And you were in the Pacific Theater, I understand. I was in the Pacific. We were... Our ship, we loaded up in uh, Pearl Harbor, having transferred from San Diego. And we had uh, 28 aircraft. Hmm. Ten aircraft were torpedo bombers, and the others were F-4 fighters. We got into a lot of activity, some of which we narrowly escaped in the Battle of Lady Gulf and later. Hmm. Wow, amazing. So, Secretary, I alluded to your positions in the government a moment ago. Would you talk about how you came into the public sector and then some of the highlights of working with the likes of John F. Kennedy and, and Lyndon yeah. B. Johnson? I got interested in public service when I read an article by Dean Anderson, who had been a middle-level official <laughs> in President Roosevelt's administration, and he talked about the challenge of government service, the intellectual challenge, and he said it called forth abilities that you never realized you had. And I said to myself, if I ever have a chance, I would love to do that. That opportunity did come in President Kennedy's time. I had started with two others out of the Harvard Business School 
after returning from the war, a management consulting firm that, though we hadn't planned to do defense work, we ended up doing a lot of studies for the government. I worked on the Polaris program, for example, which hmm. was the, probably the highest priority program at the time. So I came into the government initially as an assistant secretary of the army and got involved uh, immediately in a lot of activities, including the Cuban Missile Crisis, hmm. and later was undersecretary of the army briefly and then was pulled into McNamara's defense staff as an assistant secretary of defense for three and a half years. And the final two years, uh, I served as secretary of the Navy. So I spent eight years in the Pentagon. I hadn't expected to stay that long, but uh, it turned out I did. You mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis and having perspective over that. And I wonder, you know, given that experience and given your many roles in the military, how you think about this current geopolitical crisis unfolding in Ukraine. And, and you know, people often draw comparisons between the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. and some of the risks well, that I could Well, I can comment on that. My son, David, is better <laughs> able to deal with these issues than I am now. He was at uh, Cambridge several nights ago at Harvard on a panel with Graham Allison at the uh, Kennedy Center and with Khrushchev's granddaughter, <laughs> and they were discussing the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a dangerous time, and we were... I thought very fortunate to have uh, President Kennedy in the president's chair at the time. He was a genuine hero in World War II, and he had the strength of character to withstand uh, urges to invade uh, Cuba. We learned later that the situation was even more dire than we realized at the time. We knew they had intermediate-range missiles that could reach Washington and other American cities. What we didn't know was that they also had tactical battlefield nuclear weapons mm. with a lot of Russian troops there with release authority in case there was an invasion. So it could have been a... We learned that after the war in exchanges of information. So it was a very serious situation. We confront that now or just to see whoever says it, and it may have been Reagan, that a nuclear war should never be fought and cannot be won. That's really true. Nuclear weapon has no purpose other than to deter its use. And there are so many terrible consequences from radioactive fallout and other effects of these deadly weapons that we must be very careful that we don't resort to them. And we certainly hope that they will not be resorted to in this current conflict. In That's uh, right. We have to take the threat seriously, but we hope that it never happens. Mr. Secretary, I'm going to jump around a bit and ask you about some of your work in the private sector, specifically okay. your role at, at as president of the Washington Post. And how did you find your way into that role and into the media? And well, uh, that's an interesting question. I had a number, as you might expect, of interesting offers from companies in the defense industry, having become something of an expert at that in, in my years before hmm. my government service and including the eight years I spent there. 
But I was reluctant to go to a defense company. I think I'd been on the government side of the table for so long that I just had a little, felt a bit awkward that working for on the, on the other side. Now it's quite common, and I'm not critical of people who did that, but as I say in my own case, I had a little bit of trepidation about that. The Post offered me a job, I think uh, Catherine Graham, uh, mm-hmm. who was the publisher, knew Bob McNamara quite well, and Bob spoke highly about me to her, and they wanted a change of management for various reasons, and I came in uh, as head of the, you might say, the business side of the paper. Mm-hmm. Ben Bradley was the editor and tended to the uh, news side, Phil Jalan and later Meg Greenfield, the uh, editorial side. And it was a time of change. The industry was based on technology that was developed shortly after the Civil War and the old linotype machines and so forth. And the whole electronic revolution was beginning to come in. And there were terrible problems with very powerful uh, newspaper unions that fought the uh, introduction of the new technology. And so several people went through the job I had, uh, including myself, in our struggles to try to contend with this without being wholly successful. (laughs) Eventually, the uh, unions overstepped their bounds, and uh, Mrs. Graham responded forcefully, and the Post found itself able to harness this new technology, which has happened uh, throughout the industry. Sir, I'm going to take this on a more personal note, if I may, and you mentioned one of your sons, David Ignatius, who is, a many will know, a well-known columnist at the Washington Post. And, yeah. and I'll note that you've been blessed with some very successful and talented children all around. Your son, Adi, is the editor-in-chief of the yeah. Harvard Business Review. Your daughters That's are right. leaders yeah. in their fields of law and nonprofit. You know, I never met your late wife, but by all accounts, she was a, a very special woman. Yeah. So I guess that's the well, patriarch. We, uh, What's the secret to such a successful family? <laughs> we had four children. The two boys whom you mentioned are both leading journalists, and our two daughters are lawyers, one of them, Amy, is a uh, superior court judge in New Hampshire. And the other, Sarah, who is with me at the moment, as it turns out, went to Stanford, excellent tennis player, played on the team there, and has been an executive of uh, nonprofit uh, institutions, uh, has written a good deal about uh, asylum, taught asylum law at one point. Hmm. They are all doing... Uh, good things. I think one of the things they learned growing up in Washington was that there was more to life than just making money, and uh, they sought careers where they would be challenged and they worked on causes, and I think they were inspired by their mother, my wife, who died several years ago. She was a pioneering (laughs) environmentalist. She and two or three of her women friends formed a organization 60 or so years ago that saw women as in their role as shoppers in their ability to influence environmental decisions. Hmm. One of the early things I remember they worked on was 
It was some kind of detergent that was fouling up rivers. And so they prepared little purse-sized commentaries. They called them eco-tips <laughs> that advised women that, you know, this particular detergent rather than that particular detergent was what you ought to think about. And business didn't welcome them with open arms. I can they imagine. Call their <laughs> eco tips, they call them ego trips. <laughs> but one of the interesting things that's happened is the revolution in thinking by uh, businessmen who first saw environmental issues as a threat and now see them as an opportunity. And, you know, everybody brags about how green they are and everything right. recycled and so forth. So there have been a lot of changes in your lifetime and mine, and, and this is one that I think isn't uh, discussed as much as the women's rights and the civil rights movement, but it is a real turnabout, 180 degree on the part of business. It is certainly true. And in this industry in which I sit, it has certainly become a leading topic of discussion investment in these most recent years. The reason I ask you that about your children is just it's remarkable how successful all four of them have been. And, and as a parent of two young kids, I, you always wonder what the secret is. And it seems like well, uh, my wife gets the credit mainly. I would work these long hours and was gone a lot as a management consultant at the client's location, and she wasn't stern, but she was a New Englander, and uh, she expected them to come to dinner, make their beds, and <laughs> I think she was a good influence, and uh, the kids all went to public schools through the sixth grade, mm -hmm. and then went on to private schools. Uh, after that, and they all got graduate degrees. David went to Harvard and then to the University of Cambridge in England. And uh, Adi was one of the first Americans to go to uh, China and study there and, uh, with a group of Americans and uh, ended up on the Asian Wall Street Journal, where he met a young woman who also had... Uh, gone to Asia from Radcliffe and Harvard College. Her father was Oz Elliott, the uh, legendary editor of uh, Newsweek. And they met as young nighttime editors in uh, the Asian Journal and eventually came back to New York and got married and have three interesting boys. And David has three wonderful uh, daughters. And is the rumor true that you as a family would have nightly phone calls through the COVID it pandemic? It is more than a rumor. It <laughs> is true. And they're almost uh, nightly. We get on the phone and talk about this and that, family matters, the daily events, you know, maybe 20 minutes or so. The seven days of the week, I suppose we do this maybe uh, five evenings or so, but it's a way of keeping in touch that it's a close family. The kids like one another and enjoy uh, the problems that they have as parents and the opportunities they have as uh, careerists in their interesting fields. <laughs> well, in full disclosure to our listeners, I do know that young woman that, that Adi met, uh, Dinda, she's wonderful, and I and obviously know Adi quite well. And as you know, he has quite a sense of humor. And we were talking about 
boats once, and he joked that your family has a destroyer. And I laughed at the time and then later realized that he wasn't kidding. I'm referring, of course, to the USS Paul Ignatius, <laughs> which is the uh, Arleigh Burke class guided missile destroyer right. that yeah. was commissioned and then named after you. So I, it's quite an arc, sir, for you from your days as a lieutenant on the well, ship. And... Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, <laughs> the Secretary of the Navy at the time, Ray Mabus, called me over for lunch one day. And we just talked about this and that, and as the lunch was coming to an end, he said rather casually, oh, by the way, I'm going to name a ship after you. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and uh, they, in fact, did, and uh, it was laid down in uh, Pascagoula in the south in one of the great Navy yards there, and I've been to various uh, stages of its construction. My wife was the sponsor of the ship and broke the uh, champagne bottle. <laughs> and then at the commissioning, when the ship officially is uh, welcomed into the U.S. Navy, she was no longer with us, but her granddaughter, uh, David's daughter, Dr. Elisa Ignatius, stepped in for her. Uh, the ship is now in the Sixth Fleet in uh, Atlantic, based in Rota, Spain. I should note in passing that my daughter Sarah's son, Joel, just a couple of weeks ago was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy hmm. at the Officers Candidate School in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And he is going to a sister ship of uh, my ship that's uh, based in Japan. And after a little bit more schooling, he'll be joining that ship as a uh, serving officer. Well, congratulations to him, and, and I'm, I'm so happy yeah, that the, the tradition continues in there. And I, I was reading some of the comments you made as you spoke on the, the deck of the ship with your name and, and talking about comparing it to the ship you were on in World War II and pointing out that there were no computers back then, nothing to help, as I think you said. Well, you cranked down your own windows on your automobiles in those days, and uh, <laughs> you blocked out incoming uh, threats to your ship on a kind of a chalkboard. <laughs> and uh, all this stuff has become so much more tactical. But we had a good ship, and uh, we were very close to being sunk in the Battle of Lady Gulf with the Japanese fleet closing in on us when Admiral Corita turned around and escaped through San Bernardino straight to save his ship for eventual protection of the home islands. But later on, a month or two later, we were struck by uh, two suicide Japanese kamikaze mm. planes. One did superficial damage, knocking out our radars, and the other did serious damage, diving through the flight deck and exploding on the hangar. But our Captain Lee, who was an absolutely first-rate officer, had anticipated this kind of problem. And he had a signal installed on the bridge. So if he thought his ship was about to be struck, he could start the sprinklers flowing hmm. so the fires wouldn't consume us and light off the aviation gas and so forth. It was his foresight that... I think, enabled us to say we lost a lot of our shipmates and a number of aircraft were destroyed, but we saved the ship and uh, eventually got repaired <laughs> in San Diego and got back into the uh, 
conflict uh, at the time of the uh, Okinawa campaign. But I had the highest regard for Lee, and I must say one of the happiest times I had as Secretary of the Navy was speaking to a group in San Diego, and Lee was in the audience. He had retired as a vice admiral in La Jolla, and I asked him to stand and uh, told the group a little bit about him. I think the last thing that Captain Lee ever would have thought was that a young lieutenant on his ship <laughs> would be Secretary of the Navy someday. But funny things happen, and this this was one of them. Yeah. I eternally grateful. I learned a lot from him, and have the highest regard for him. That's an amazing, amazing story. Well, sir, I don't want to take much more of your time, but I will just close with a, a final sort of open-ended question to you. You know, when, when you think back over this truly remarkable lifetime of service and accomplishment, and, and there will be many years to come, I know, but looking backwards, sir, what's sort of a standout memory for you that maybe we haven't discussed? Well, uh, some of my friends think our best days are behind us. I don't believe that. I think our diversity has introduced new problems, but it's introduced wonderful opportunities. I think my economics professor, Sumner Schlechter, said one day in class that God distributed brains randomly, not by sex. And if we disregard the brain power of women, we'll be the poorer for it. And we've seen the opportunity for women in the professions in politics and other areas to apply their brain power, which is the most valuable resource we have. That's something I think I'm really happy about. I think we're going through a rather difficult time now, and I hope we don't lose confidence in ourselves. I worry about some of the extreme positions, some of the coarse language that we seem to utilize, uh, viewing people who disagree with us as enemies. We've got to get over that and get back on track. I'm confident, I hope that we will, and I have to believe that we will. So I've seen change from the Depression years through the war in the post-war world, the coast war. Cold War, mm. and we should have confidence in our values and believe in ourselves and get on with the job. Well, I could not agree more. Those are wonderful points on which to close our conversation. Right. So, uh, Paul Ignatius, I, I want to thank you for your time and for your contribution in so many ways. So, uh, thanks again for being on this podcast. All right.